This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. During his speech announcing that the United States was pulling out of the Paris Agreement, President Trump talked about how uneven the playing field was and that the U.S. was bearing the brunt of the costs. He also mentioned that the role that both China and India play in increasing carbon emissions in their parts of the world. But China is one of 197 nations to sign onto the deal to improve environment and slow down climate change if possible. So what exactly is their role in the process now and what can it be? going forward with the U.S. stepping aside. Jacques Delisle joins us in studio. He's professor of law and professor of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also director of the Center for East Asian Studies. Joining me on the phone as well, Ann Lee, adjunct professor of economics and finance at NYU. She's also authored a new book coming out June 9th titled, Will China's Economy Collapse? And also joining us on the phone, Alex Wong, who is an assistant professor of law at UCLA. Jacques, great to see you again, as always. Thanks great for coming again. Great to be back. Thanks. And Alex, great to have you with us on the phone. Great. Thanks for, Thanks having, for having me. Thank you. Uh, I guess let's start with, the obviously, the comments by President Trump singling out China and India. Now, obviously, we're talking about China in the course of this discussion. What was your reaction, Jacques, to that? Well, it's not surprising that he singled out China and India. I mean, he wanted to portray this as an agreement the Paris Accords as being something that put an unfair burden on the U.S. And the best place to point for that, if you want to make that rather specious argument, uh, is China and India. China passed the U.S. as the number one emitter of greenhouse gases about a decade ago. Uh, and so any global solution is going to have China and the U.S. first and foremost, and India not too far behind. And we have a long tradition in this whole process of trying to deal with climate change of, of differentiated responsibilities, in some sense putting less strict limits on developing countries than on developed ones. So it was sort of an old card to play. But, I mean, there's so many so many things wrong with yeah. the, the Trump withdrawal, that I'm sure we'll get into them in this half hour. But I think that's the reason for pointing to China and India. They are big polluters. And as developing countries, uh, they get a little bit more slack than the most developed countries do, particularly at the, as to the date when a peak emissions were supposed to be hit. China was set for 2030. It's almost certainly going to beat that goal. Right. But that's obviously behind what the U.S. and other developed countries were supposed to do in the short run in terms of curbing. Now, per capita, we're still putting out way more. And Yeah, I think it was aimed at a domestic audience, if Trump actually understood why China is such a large emitter, you only have to look back a very short period in history where how did China become such a big manufacturer and, and pollute its environment? It was because lots of CEOs in the U.S. decided to outsource all their manufacturing to China and then re-import all those products to the U.S. So it was actually a lot of U.S. products pushing their pollution over to China. And if you had to trace where the original uh, polluters were, it was really coming from U.S. sources. And so uh, it's quite unfair to say that it was China, you know, doing it in isolation here. And frankly, you know, China is trying to do as much as it can to try to uh, cut back its emissions. It's impossible to say that you can just flip a switch and cut all those emissions overnight. Right. I mean, China is a massive country. It's going to take a very long time to switch out all the coal manufacturing, you know, all the coal power plants into nuclear, which is what it's trying to do right now. And nuclear is a much cleaner uh, source of energy. Wind and solar alone at this point in time just cannot replace coal. Uh, it's simply not 
powerful enough. And even though China has built hundreds of wind turbines, they still have to solve the problem of how to connect all those wind turbines to the electrical grid. Uh, but once they solve that problem, uh, there's no stopping China from building thousands of these and really, you know, stepping up its transition to alternative energy. Alex? Well, we should also um, remind ourselves that one of the things Trump said in the statements on Thursday is uh, is simply not true, which is that China uh, will have to do nothing for 13 years. This has been a standard Republican line. It's referring to the fact that China, in their Paris pledge, says that they're going to try to peak emissions by 2030, 13 years from now. But um, and, and Mitch McConnell and others have said, well, this means China will do nothing. They'll just continue to emit for 13 years. But uh, China's already really in earnest for the last decade been working on improving energy efficiency and carbon efficiency in the economy. And the investment that will be involved in peaking by 2030 is tremendous. So they've been talking recently about $360 billion in investment in uh, clean energy between now and 2020. And obviously, for to, to transform the energy economy, which now is still about 60, uh, a little bit over 60 percent coal, uh, to one where you're peaking emissions and relying more on uh, natural gas, nuclear, wind, solar, hydro, these types of things, uh, it, it requires a tremendous transformation of the economy, and, and that will require a tremendous amount of work in the next 13 years. So, Anne, where do you think this puts China in terms of the uh, the Paris Accord? And, and that's a question that was brought up uh, in recent articles as well. Uh, the fact that uh, with some of these changes that China is already trying to make, and as you and Alex both alluded to, what this is going to be, what they are going to try and do over the next you know, 20 years or so, uh, do they put themselves uh, at or near the top of, of leading the pack You know, in terms of what they would like to try and do and changes they would like to make uh, around the globe? Yes, absolutely. Actually, according to the Heinrich Boll Foundation, which is a German think tank. Uh, they said that China already uh, basically invests far more in alternative energy and clean energy than the you know, U.S. by at least double the U.S. investment uh, and surpasses Germany and other countries already. So China's already in the leading role in terms of uh, R&D and investments in green energy. Um, you know, with the Paris Agreement, it actually, you know, provides even more uh, economic incentive for China to continue developing uh, these areas, and China really understands uh, the need for environmental protection, uh, given you know its you know serious consequences it's having on its population. And so China's moving decisively in this area, and I think that you know China is being pushed into this role. Uh, I don't think that China necessarily was seeking it out before, but the fact that you know, U.S. is stepping away from it, and, uh, you know, there's this vacuum. Uh, a lot of folks are looking to China uh, to play a leadership role. And, you know, with the Paris Agreement, it basically says that developed countries are supposed to help subsidize developing countries like India. Uh, and India has no problem asking for these kind of handouts. And if India has, you know, subsidies for clean energy, they could easily buy uh, clean energy from China, which has become somewhat of a low-cost producer in a number of areas, such as solar power. And China, you know, whenever they basically master some kind of technology, they end up becoming the low-cost producer. And so as China, you know, continues to invest uh, in nuclear and, and other areas of uh, alternative energies, 
you know, they could easily sell to many other uh, developing countries uh, this technology. And this would, again, put China into uh, an economic leadership role in this area. Jacques? Uh, there's clearly a lot of money going into this in China. As Alex mentioned, the $360 billion target was announced uh, beginning of this year, and that's only by 2020 and, and more to get to peak carbon before 2030. Uh, and China's obviously going to be a very big player in two ways. One is they continue to build a lot of energy capacity, and much of the effort is going into non-carbon, uh, renewable-type energies. China is a major manufacturing source for things like solar panels, so clearly they're investing in that kind of capacity. Right. Um, so there's a lot of, of growth on that front. China also is, is uh, in the middle of a long-term push for an innovation economy, which means R&D and tech and certainly green energy is part of that. So that's sort of the, the true energy side of it. But there's a political side to this too. And as with the TPP, the, the Trump withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, so too with the Paris Climate Accord. In a sense, it's allowing China to step into this leadership role without having to bear the full costs of leadership. Right. If the U.S. were still fully engaged, there'd be more pressure on China to be more concrete, to bear uh, specific burdens. But as it is now, China gets to sort of step into the rhetorical vacuum. And so uh, Xi Jinping could go to Davos and say, we're in favor of economic globalization and not get the kind of pushback he ordinarily would have gotten on opening up the Chinese economy, on, right. on market reforms that are still needed. We're going to see that on climate now, too, uh, that the EU now has a reason to stand up there with China and basically embrace in a general way uh, this notion of, of dealing with climate change. And in some sense, the, the tough details, uh, China doesn't have to bear as much heat for because right now we're back to fighting a, a, a battle we thought we'd already fought and won, which is getting the major emitters on board with some kind of reduction plan that hopefully will keep us around two degrees Celsius. Two things, a Alex, for you, uh, and kind of playing off of what Jock said, uh, obviously the, the, the future for China and the economy is something that we've talked about quite a bit uh, on this show in the past. And the fact that President Xi uh, has kind of taken, as Jacques mentioned, going to Davos and, and being uh, very uh, visually evident uh, with his meetings with President Trump recently. He is seemingly taking uh, quite a step forward a as a world leader. And it would seem to be uh, that if China is going to be moving forward, they have a greater opportunity to, to build relations even further with European Union countries. Right. So, so I think the last few weeks, including with the Paris Green announcement uh, by Trump, they, these have been a, a great couple of weeks for Chinese leaders, right? So uh, kind of a lot of own goals from the U.S. government and uh, gives an opportunity for Xi to step forward and, and say the right things on the global stage. On this question of, um, of Chinese leadership on, on climate change, though, I think uh, some context is important. I, I think what do we mean by leadership exactly? So, so I, I can think of at least three ways uh, that China could be a leader, uh, and not all of them are, are uh, a positive stories. So, so on, on the positive side, I think on the clean energy investment for China, China has clearly already become a global leader on clean energy. Right? Their, their renewable power capacity now exceeds the total energy capacity in Japan and it's doubled the total power capacity in Germany. So they're a major clean energy uh, leader. But in terms of being low carbon, we have to keep in mind that China is by far the largest emitter of carbon emissions right now. And when they'll actually become a low carbon economy, this is really something far in, in the future. So leadership in that regard is still some ways off. And I think there's an unknown in a third area of leadership, which is how will China interact with the rest of the world, not just the EU, but also all of these other developing countries around the world who would like to see themselves 
become uh, leading emerging economies like like China has over the last few decades. Right. In this area, China has a real possibility to go in one of two ways. They could essentially start exporting all the old line fossil fuel energy, you know, coal power plants, uh, steel, cement, these types of things, and uh, use that to be the economic engine in these other places. Or they could go the direction of a greener development model. And what China chooses to do, how they implement their policy in that regard, will, I think, truly determine whether they're a climate leader. We're joined in studio by Jacques Delisle of the University of Pennsylvania on the phone with Alex Wong of UCLA and Lee of New York University. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. One of the interesting things uh, coming out of this, Anne, is kind of this perception of if the United States as a country is not going to step forward on the issue of climate change right now, that we may very well see a lot of different states here in the U.S. make that move. So I guess the question is, is could we see a a burgeoning relationship between individual states and and countries outside the U.S., whether that be China or, or entities in the EU? Uh, yeah, it's certainly possible that the states will want to reach out to China and uh, perhaps you know, purchase uh, technology uh, made in China uh, to help them transition into a cleaner economy, given that uh, China is uh, one of the leaders in driving down the cost of solar as well as other types of uh, clean energy. And China is becoming a real leader in this area. Uh, you know, if you go look and see what China's done, a lot of the solar panels now can also go on sides of buildings, not just on top of buildings. They've uh, been able to perfect a lot of this technology. And they're using it in very creative ways. Like in Hangzhou, for instance, instead of using street lights, they now use uh, glassy sidewalks that have solar panel uh, panels that light up the sidewalk so that, that provides the light at night. And so... You know, it's, they're just coming up with so many ingenious ways, and all these ideas uh, can be copied uh, throughout the United States uh, if the states and cities so choose to. Um, but from China's standpoint, I don't think that the Chinese leaders will see it as important as maybe the states yeah. will see it, the relationship, given that China probably doesn't see this as helping their geopolitics as much. But, you know, from an economic standpoint, it certainly uh, has huge potential. Yeah, I, mean, I think a lot of it is a sort of signaling effect, right, uh, that for uh, for Governor Brown from California, who's headed off to do this, and other uh, governors uh, on the West Coast and increasingly some on the East Coast, yeah. who will say we're still with our doing our part uh, for helping the U.S. collectively to achieve the, the climate uh, change goals set forth in Paris. I mean, I think that's partly just a genuine commitment to these kinds of changes. So why do you go to China? Well, it's sort of saying... You know, Trump is all on his own here. Basically, the U.S. federal government has gone one way, but that right. doesn't mean that U.S. business, U.S. states, and, and so on. So it's, it's a signaling device, a little bit of mass binding, perhaps. You know, we're going to make these commitments on very public stages, uh, and China probably gets a little bit out of it, right? To the extent that that the uh, the idea is to um, to gain something uh, in terms of the stature of Xi Jinping compared to Trump and all that. It's got a bit of a payoff, but I don't think it's going to drive a whole lot. I think it is it is the initial reaction of trying to keep this all together and. Um, you can see political gains for both sides. Well, and considering we've we've talked in the past, Jacques, about you know the 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 Chinese economy as a whole, when you add this piece to it in terms of the the 
the driving force uh, pushing forward on solar and, and wind and, and a variety of different areas. How much of a, of a component is it to the Chinese economy right now and how much could it be in the next decade, you know, if they continue to, to, to push a lot of these initiatives forward? Well, I mean, uh, it depends on sort of how you want to unpack that. In some sense, you know, the raw the thing with China is any raw number uh, is big, right. even if it's a small percentage, right? right? So we're talking three hundred and sixty billion dollars uh, in this in this several year investment plan, you know, by twenty twenty, and more of that going forward. But you've still got an economy which is, you know, for power generation, sixty plus percent dependent on coal and right. all that. So you know, it can grow a lot and be very large. Um, but it's not per se a big part of the Chinese economy. I think what really drives it is, is it's, again, a piece of this broader uh, goal of, of having China move forward in more high-tech type industries, and this is certainly one of them. But a lot of what drives it is simply the self-interest that China is getting clobbered by the consequences yeah. of things that are also related to climate change. So Chinese uh, populations are heavily concentrated in coastal cities. It will be affected by rising sea levels. Much of the pollution that is choking Chinese cities is from coal-fired power plants. So there are these kinds of, of reasons that are you know, deeply rooted in self-interest. Uh, so it's just kind of everything pulling in the same direction. But the thing that slows it all down is just the sheer magnitude of the problem, the size mm -hmm. of the energy demand, uh, and just the, the momentum behind a Chinese economy, which has been built on a fairly polluting basis, including the kinds of pollutants that contribute to climate change. Alex? Right. We, we have to remember that um, Chinese leaders are well aware that the traditional way of sort of fossil fueled, heavy energy consuming um, development has created a serious drag on the economy. They know that they've been studying the economic cost of pollution on China for 20 years now, and they're well aware that it's creating all sorts of costs in terms of health, destruction of natural resources, and and there's a, a lot of economic loss from, from this. And China really is at their ecolog ecological limits. If you've been to China, uh, Beijing on a bad air day, you know this is true, right? And the leaders wake up to this every, every day. So I, I think part of uh, the clean energy move is one, uh, you know, to create these uh, so-called st strategic emerging industries in China. But they also realize they, they simply can't go in this direction much further. They have to change, right? So, so I agree with Jacques that this is very much uh, framed in terms of domestic interest. They have to go this way, and they, they believe that they can sort of make a lot of money and extend this so-called economic miracle further by mm -hmm. going in this direction. So things are lining up for them. And from your book, uh, what is the expectation for this as a piece uh, in your mind for the Chinese economy moving forward? I think that with the technology changing as rapidly as it is and the scale of implementation uh, is also changing rapidly and getting much larger, I think that it could actually uh, be a significant part of the economy in the not-too-distant future. I mean, it, lots of people think of China only a few years ago as just a place of cheap labor, and, you know, suddenly now it's, you know, known as a place for technology and innovation, and, you know, soon it'll be... Uh, a leader in, in climate change issues. I mean, it's. I think the pace of change in China is really staggering, and we have to remember that. Um, you know, we shouldn't underestimate China's abilities in doing these things. And uh, when we judge countries, we shouldn't be judging them where they are right now, but just the progress that they've made over time. And by that standard, I would say that China's made probably more progress than any other country in the world at this point. And so, uh, you know, they have that momentum going, and uh, hopefully, you know, this will also uh, be really instrumental in uh, keeping their economy chugging along. Uh, I think the market could easily reach into the trillions. 
because China is already pouring a massive amount of money into their Belt and Road strategy, which is basically recreating the Silk Road trades uh, between China and Europe, as well as extending it to Southeast Asia and Africa. And all along the way, they could be also uh, pushing their clean technology out to these countries that basically haven't even come online into the modern economy, uh, such as the ones in Central Asia. And so this could really be transformative. It could really uh, create a lot of extra demand for China in these new industries. And so I think that what we see now is just could be peanuts. Uh, to what will be in the next five to ten years. Well, that that's probably an inter- interesting point, Jocka, the fact that, you know, they have the opportunity to really, a- as this growth continues, to really impact a lot of countries around the globe. It could be, you know, in Asia, it could be a variety of d- uh, other locations around the world right now. Yeah, and this is a sort of a point Alex raised earlier, which is, you know, China has an, an ability to shape some of what goes on, particularly in emerging economies, and how clean or dirty they're going to be. And yeah. so we're all watching this one belt, one road you know, phrase that's been kicking around for some time now and is kind of the buzzword phrase for anything for an economic policy related really in China these days. Um, and, and now it's we're getting some, some more details on the amount of capital they're ready to put into infrastructure, but, you know, to what end and with what effect in these countries. There's a lot of skepticism about how big of an impact the one belt, one road policy will have and about right. how to unpack the geopolitics of trying to solidify relations with these countries versus trying to lock in energy resources, including fossil fuels, which is obviously not a good model, right. and how much it's trying to bring these uh, countries along economically in a way that will help uh, for market opportunities for Chinese producers, but also for Chinese companies that can go in and do a bunch of infrastructure work, which is really the core to this in many ways is infrastructure. A lot of it's uh, transportation uh, type networks, but, but clearly there's uh, there's going to be an energy component if uh, if this does succeed in spurring economic development. Again, I think you know Alex probably has has uh, has something to say to this. Alex, yeah, you know I I think uh, to step back just for a second, you know I think one thing that should be troubling to Americans here is how different the visions about the future are uh, between what China is is planning to do with the, uh, you know, kind of this green development future. And what Trump, Trump is doing in the withdrawal from Paris Agreement. One person said to me last week after the withdrawal that uh, the withdrawal from the Paris Agreement is essentially like Trump trying to destroy Netflix to bring back blockbuster video. And I think that's a great way to encapsulate what's going on here. So, you know, China is thinking about the future, trying to develop industries of the future that are not sort of occupied by other players. And Trump is trying to retreat, right? So, this is why, you know, Governor Brown is in China. Uh, this week, right? They they have a similar vision of the future that we can stake out clean energy, other types of energy, and even the, you know Pittsburgh got a lot of attention last week. Pittsburgh is not banking its future on bringing back steel, right? right. I mean Pittsburgh is thinking forward to other types of industries, um, you know, advanced industries just like China is. So anyone who has sort of gone through this process is thinking in a different way about the future. So if we think on that that higher level, we should be very troubled about this this vision that the uh, U.S. withdrawal from Paris Agreement uh, represents. Well, and it also makes you wonder, Alex, going forward, what the what the state of these industries are going to be here in the United States. And, and obviously, we've seen them grow over the last uh, many years. Uh, but how much of an impact do you think that they really will have? What, you know, what kind of hit will they take uh, over the next several years, considering the fact that the, the U.S. has decided that it does not want to be in this agreement right now? Right. So I, I think the, the best hope is that it's not going to be as bad as we, as we think. Right. This has been it's, it is a problem when the federal government exits 
uh, out of these industries. There's a lot of money that the federal government can invest in research and supporting the industries of, of the future. I think the best hope is that states like California, in conjunction with Washington, and there are a lot of states in the Northeast uh, who've, who've uh, committed to, to dealing with climate change, and that all of these state-level commitments will be able to fill and, and maybe, you know, hopefully even try to exceed what, what otherwise would have been the case with the federal support. But um, I think we're going to have to rely on other actors, essentially, uh, states working together and stepping up with industry to, to uh, develop these industries. And just picking on the last point Alex made, of course, a lot of companies have de- dedicated themselves to hitting certain clean um, sure. uh, targets, and that's going to create demand as well. So it's states, it's, it's the corporate sector, and it's the fact that some companies based in the U.S. are producing this not just for producing you know, clean energy technology and products, not just for U.S. markets, uh, but for global ones. And, of course, on the federal budget side, you know, we'll see what comes out of the congressional process, what, what Trump is willing to veto. So I share Alex's sense that, that this is potentially really, really bad, uh, but there are uh, ways of, of um, mitigating it and perhaps undoing a lot of the, the uh, damage that could be done policy-wise. I think it's much harder to undo the symbolic damage, and, that, right. and that's real. Great to have you all with it. Oh, I'm sorry, Alex. Go ahead. Oh, no, I, I, I was just agreeing with that. Uh, okay. Uh, Great to have you all with us. Thank you, Ann. Thank you, Alex. We appreciate your time on the phone. Great. Thank Thanks you. A lot. Thank you. Jacques, great to see you again, as always. Always a pleasure. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.